You'll be pleased to learn that I've concluded uh, that you cannot sum up Jesus in two weeks. Um, so please be relieved by that. Uh, this is nowhere near um, a full case study on who he is, what he did, and what he said. But it's been an incredible pleasure to spend time looking at this. I laid down the challenge last week to those of you who are here, and it follows on this week. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? Not maybe just uh, the Jesus that we read of. I think we can fall into a trap sometimes that we read these amazing stories in the Bible, and he becomes a character in the Bible. He becomes something of uh, a hero of old, and we lose that personal relationship, that realization that he's speaking to us. I had the great privilege of going to Saundersfoot with Mark and um, some other ministers this week. And uh, Leslie Isaac spoke, who's a huge part of Street Pastors. Um, and he spoke for two days on Jesus. So to begin with, I was really very confident. Because I was like, you know what, Les, I've got this covered, totally doing this. Uh, and then it struck me that maybe Jesus is doing something. Maybe Jesus is stirring his church to remember who he is and really what he stood for. I think that's an incredible challenge to us. And I went from being slightly arrogantly proud to terrified, if I'm honest, at the realization that God is stirring something. So it's with a real joy that I continue to talk about Jesus. We looked at the fact, we are often told in Sunday school, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. And we kind of conclude with that. And I think as we get older, we kind of feel that's a little bit childish. Jesus spoke on the kingdom of God, faith, money, movement building, healing, law, warnings, eating and drinking, family, children, prayer, the Holy Spirit, stubbornness, salvation, forgiveness, social justice, hypocrisy, obedience, death, love, life, marriage, peace, and resurrection. I think it's safe to conclude that maybe Jesus was a childlike answer in Sunday school, but he covers a whole load of very adult-like topics produces a whole load of answers to those very real situations we face. We live, whether we like it or not, in a world that tells us Jesus and faith have become less and less relevant. The world's doing okay. And yet I think we see here, actually, that Jesus would have something to say about that. That the world is missing the point. That actually Jesus is probably more relevant now than he's been for a long time because we're beginning to struggle to do it on our own. Our ways are falling short. We're going to look at the second half of the Good Shepherd this morning and we're going to again ask it through that lens. Who is Jesus to you? The children's answers were brilliant. They were brilliant. Because if I'm honest, when I take on something new, much like Erin, I pray. I've not ridden a bike. I cannot tell you how long it's been actually since I last rode a bike. Uh, and I have a bike. And yet there is part of me that would be scared to ride it. Is it childlike for me to ask Jesus to look after me? Or is it actually relationship? I'm going to ask Helen to come. And she's going to read this uh, whole passage from John 10 for us. As we engage with this idea again of Jesus and who he is to us. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, 
Anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. <clears throat> the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him, because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him, because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you so much for your word. God, I just pray this morning that as we engage with a text that we're becoming more familiar with, we would not get lost in what's being said outwardly. But God, may we just hear, may we catch a glimpse of what's being said inwardly to us. God, may we in between the lines of shepherds and sheep hear the heart of the Father for his children. So God, would you stir in us a passion for you? God, help us to fall more in love with you. Help us to understand just a touch more of who you are through the words of your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, as some of you know, I uh, grew up in Cheddar. Hands up if you know where Cheddar is. Superb. You're welcome to visit my place. Uh, so I grew up in Cheddar. Um, it uh, is superb. I adore it. It was great fun, but it got a little bit boring as a teenager. There is only so much cheese uh, one can eat for free, uh, and that's pretty much all they give away free in Cheddar, which seems very cliche, but is dangerously true. Um, so we got bored. Me and my friends got bored, and as you can imagine, a collection of overactive teenagers in a place like Cheddar getting bored tended to lead to a level of um, should we say trouble? Um, there are so many stories I could tell. Uh, I wasn't sure if my parents were going to be here this morning, so I like, had to crop down that collection of stories massively because there's a whole host of things they don't know I was associated with. 
and these get recorded, so there is no way I'm confessing to some of those things. Um, but something I can share, which uh, helps us build on what I want to talk about this morning, was um, I played a huge amount of football. And a friend of mine had a, a wonderfully big garden, and so we used to play football in his garden. Now, I don't know how much sport you've played in each other's gardens, but it doesn't really matter how big the garden is. You will inevitably manage to put the ball over the fence. I found this in the smallest garden to the largest garden. Somehow, as humans, we just seem to find the boundary and then clear it. Um, and so the ball would frequently go over uh, the fence um, into a neighbor's, it's actually a wall, over the neighbor's wall into their garden, and this neighbor just collected the balls. No interest in giving them back at all. We never saw them. So we would just each bring a different ball, and this would go on and on and on, and it would build up. And it became a bit of an issue because uh, we were teenagers, and whilst we didn't have a huge amount to spend money on, uh, we didn't particularly like buying footballs all the time. So we were playing, and um, I remember it incredibly clearly. We were playing football, and the ball went over, and I can't remember who it was, uh, but someone piped up, we should just go and get it. Because we know what's going to happen, so we should go and get it. So my friend's house uh, would be here, and then his kind of gate fence thing was here, and then there was a small road, and then the wall to the neighbors. And so the ball had gone over, so we said, we'll go. So the four of us decided to jump over the wall, so we did. Land in the neighbor's garden, which if you know cheddar is uh, similar to kind of a valley's environment, not quite on the same scale, but generally everything is on a hill. And so we jumped over the wall, the ball had rolled all the way down the hill and rested against the house. The first problem, which none of us considered, is the wall on our side was knee-high. The wall, once we jumped over it, was so high, because <laughs> we had not taken into any account geography at this point. But we didn't really consider that at the time. We just landed with a bit of a, a kind of splat. So we ran down to get the ball, uh, and like all good stealths, we giggled like uh, small children do at that point, because we thought it was hilarious. Uh, and as we got to the bottom of the garden to the ball, we heard that knock on the window. And uh, I've always had a real issue with authority, like it just scares me. Um, so I had one thought in my mind, turns out all four of us had the same thought, which was how quickly can I get back up the garden? Um, and so we did. My friends whose house it was managed to pick up the ball and we got to the wall, which as you would have known from the bit I said earlier, was way higher than just jumping over. So three of us scrambled up the wall. My friend whose house it was had decided that the best thing to do, and those of you who play football know this, was to put the football up his jumper so he had free hands. Trying to climb a wall with a football up your jumper is very difficult. Safe to say he was caught. And this neighbor frowned upon the fact that not only had we now decided to enter his garden, we'd also given him a huge collection of footballs. So he dragged my friend round to his house uh, to speak to his parents. We'd all made it safely back to his garden and hid, because that's what good friends do at that age. We hid and watched the whole thing play out from the safety of the garden. I think that story, whilst uh, maybe not the same for each of us, would resonate. Human nature has a very clear moment. When we are confronted with a situation, we make a decision. We calculate in our heads, is this a situation I want to embrace? Or is this a situation I want to scarper from? Is this a situation where I feel like there is something to be gained from it, or I could negotiate? Or actually, maybe this incredibly angry neighbor isn't going to shout at us? Or is this a situation where my first thought is to get as far away from the problem as possible? It's human nature. I imagine each of us, if I gave us time, would think of a situation where everything in us either A, wanted to run, or B, did run. 
Verse 12. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. In every single situation where I've run away from the problem, it's because I have decided the challenge that is in front of me isn't one I think I'm going to win. I've weighed up the cost and the sacrifice. I've weighed all of these things up and we do it incredibly quickly. And I have decided, you know what? The best thing for me to do is be as far away from here as possible. And Jesus says to us, you know what? The hired hand is like that. The hired hand is committed to his job. He'll take his wages. He'll watch the sheep when it's like a nice, cool, calm evening and there's a breeze and they can chat. But when problems arise, when there is a difficulty, they have no loyalty. There is no reason for them to stay. They weigh up the odds and they are gone. We touched on it last week. But I think the world is a whole lot like this. The world can be a whole lot like this. Promises us much. Looks incredibly loyal when things are going well. Right by our side, bigging us up when we're the next big thing, when everything is rosy. But when challenge comes, when difficulty comes, it's amazing how quickly it can abandon us. That promised job promotion that you've been always front runner for goes to someone else. But if you keep working at that incredibly high level under that huge level of stress, you know what, next time. Relationships, all sorts of things. When things get difficult, the world abandons us. We're left feeling lost. We're left feeling alone. I love what Jesus does in this parable. I'm just going to keep this. I love what Jesus does in this parable because not only does he tell us who he is, not only does he tell us what he's doing, he allows us to see the other side as well. This isn't just a story of a good shepherd. But this is a story of a good shepherd in a world full of hired hands that have very little loyalty. Verse 11, the verse before how he explains the hired hand will function, he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who is Jesus to you? This question that we keep covering, who is Jesus to you? Because when I've looked at this, when I've spent time with this and contrasted the hired hand with Jesus, I come to one conclusion, that Jesus is my constant. Jesus is constant. You know, whatever the challenge I may face is, he is there. No matter how much the odds look like they're stacked against me, he is there. The world will abandon me. Other situations will abandon me. So I played with something I've engaged with a huge amount of times in conversations with others and with myself. So forgive me as I read it, but I want to get it right. I want you to consider this as I read as well for yourself. How many of us have felt or said the words, I feel far from God? Use that line, I just feel far from God. This truth confirms he hasn't moved. He hasn't moved. How many of us feel like God isn't involved in our problems? Just doesn't seem interested. Again, he hasn't moved. 
How many of us feel like we need to toughen up? We need to get through this. I need to find some resolve. Fight this battle myself. Again, he hasn't moved. The implications of Jesus being my constant change everything. Because I've grown up in a situation where I've decided that some of the things I do put me further away from God. And then sometimes I kind of rein that back in. But this tells me, and as we read in this parable, he has not gone anywhere. He is constant. He is always present. So it's on me. That feeling is probably, in truth, fictional. Something I've generated. Something I lean into as a comfort for myself because the truth is Jesus is constant. I find a huge comfort in that and I want to ask you that question shamelessly. Who is Jesus to you? Because I promise you in two weeks I found out more about who he is to me than I ever imagined over 35 years. Who is Jesus to you? It's a huge privilege for me to invite Pastor Mark up and I'm going to ask him that very question. Who is Jesus to you? Because it's all very well me telling you. It's all very well you asking the question of yourselves. But it's incredibly powerful to hear that revelation in real life. So I'm going to invite Pastor Mark up. We're going to sit on comfy chairs. So I carried them down. It's because I'm old. <laughs> uh, so over the past two weeks, we've looked at the question of who is Jesus to you? We've journeyed through John 10. It's become clear Jesus isn't just sat in the stained glass windows of chapels around the nation looking down on our lives. Um, so I just wondered if you could begin by telling us who was Jesus to you as you grew up? How, how as a younger person, as a child, was Jesus involved and who was he to you at that stage of your life? Yeah, it's, it's interesting to reflect on that really because I think in all honesty, I didn't hear much about Jesus. He was a, a, a kind of... Um, children's Bible character that you used to see in Sunday school that somebody read you a story with his nicely manicured toenails and blonde hair and blue eyes personified in Robert Powell's Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember that? You know? and, and I think I didn't hear much about Jesus. I heard an awful lot about a terrifying God uh, who was really cross with me because I was always mucking things up. Um, I grew up in a very traditional Welsh religious family. We went to church three times a Sunday. And the reality was, yeah, I didn't hear much about Jesus at all. He was not somebody I was concerned with. I didn't hear much about the Holy Spirit either. Just this God figure who was very, very cross with me because he kept a double entry ledger in heaven. And on one side, all my wrong doing, and on the other side, a blank page, because it wasn't much good. So there we go. <laughs> okay. Um, so I guess the natural progression from that question is, how then has this Jesus, who was very distant, uh, who was incredibly well kept, uh, despite all of the challenges that he faced, uh, how has that Jesus become a part of your day-to-day -day life? Um, how did that kind of transition happen from distant Jesus to personal? You talked about abandonment, and I think, um, I think I had abandonment issues as a teenager. Um, I don't talk about it very much, but the truth is, Tim, that 
for all the religious facade that was going on in my home. Um, my parents were alcoholics and uh, were regularly drinking to such excess that their behavior was just out of control. So regular fights, fisticuffs, um, regular times when as a 12-year-old, I can remember having to undress my mother and put her to bed. Um, all sorts of things, which perhaps, you know, I don't need to go into, but just a horrifying time. And the escapism that I sought was to try and hang out with guys who would give me a sense of belonging. But there was still something missing. I played a lot of rugby in those days, hang out with the rugby team and stuff. And there were one or two guys in the rugby team that were Christians, went to another church. And so they started talking about Jesus and the reality of who he was. But in all honesty, you know, what, again, you know, Jesus was just a picture book character. And the reality was that my parents were very religious, went to church every Sunday, and you'd swear everything was absolutely fine. But it was hell at home. And so that sense of abandonment and just loneliness just grew inside of me. And then one night I heard the minister of the church talking about the cross and the reality of what Jesus had done. And it just suddenly struck me that this picture book character had done something incredibly significant for me and these issues of abandonment, I went home, I went to bed, and I just, I tossed and turned. I couldn't, you know, if this was real, that, you know, he would do something for me. And I can remember crying out to him, if you're real, I need to know. Because I feel incredibly alone. And when you talk about that sense of, you know, I felt alone, but the truth was he was there. And he was there. Because he appeared to me. And I did have a flashing light, Damascus Road experience. My conversion was what so many, many people crave. And I'm incredibly humbled when I think about what Jesus did for me. Because in that moment, he broke through. And my world, in the matter of minutes, turned upside down. Because all of a sudden... I realized I wasn't alone. I wasn't facing these issues by myself. Um, things did not miraculously improve straight away. Um, we weren't suddenly the Swiss family Robinson. I mean, it wasn't like the little house on the prairie or anything like that. And uh, yeah, I gave my life to Christ. I was baptized. There was a lot of stuff to work out. But the reality was... I'd be a liar if I sat here now and said to you that everything was fine with my parents. It wasn't. And there came a stage, even as a married man with a young family, when I had to make a choice, really. You know, was I going to rely on Jesus being the constant in my life because my parents certainly weren't, or not? And I decided, you know, that I would seek to just continue with Christ, really. And so... That happened, and yeah, 
I can say more about my parents if you want me to, but maybe in um, a moment. I think what I'd love to do is uh, just to follow on, as you said, you, you had that amazing moment um, and that your journey was one which I think a lot of people would be able to relate to in that sense of actually there was, there was crisis. And I think sometimes in life we don't see them as crisis until we see there's a solution to them. Um, so I just want to ask you this question. I mean, obviously, with this question is a huge question, so please answer it as you see fit. But uh, if I asked you the question, who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to you? Now, sat here, what would your answer be and, and why? Taking into account everything that you've journeyed, and please be aware people would like to go home eventually, uh, and having two preachers sat here would be a risk. But who is Jesus to you and why? I think he's, number one, real. Uh, this guy invaded my life. And uh, there is a good ending to the story because the relationship with my parents was so dire. Um, but they came to a personal relationship with him as well. Um, many, many years later. And I was fully reconciled to them. Uh, it was an amazing time in our lives as a family. And the reality was I saw Jesus as doing something not just in my life, but in other people's lives. Lives that were wrecked. Lives that were false. You know, full of hypocrisy, going to church on a Sunday and stuff, and behind closed doors, it was a very different kind of life. And so the first thing I'd say is that, for me, Jesus is absolutely real. I'm absolutely convinced of that. I'm a guy. I'm a logical person. So, you know, how on earth did my life get resolved in that way? The abandonment issues gone. And the fact that I saw Jesus break through into my parents' lives and totally transform them as well. Nobody will convince me that Jesus isn't real. He is no longer the stuff of picture books. He is absolutely real. And I think what's on the screen, he is my constant. I'm a blessed guy. I've got a gorgeous wife. I've got two fantastic kids. I belong to a fantastic church. But that's all down to him. And, you know, all the statistics will tell you that I should become anything other than a pastor. But the reality is, I am a pastor. And I'm absolutely convinced in the reality of who Jesus is and what he can do for people. And just in closing, um, as I've touched on, as I'm sure a lot of people have experienced, the world is continually telling us, and a majority of the conversation I have with people is that, uh, that Jesus is a very much a done model. Church is failing, that actually it's about self-help. It's uh, Netflix series is on how to throw everything you own away and live in a clutter-free life and all this. So when the world is telling us that they don't need Jesus, how would you respond to that? Uh, just leaning in, like you've said, to your life as an answer, and if you overlap, it's, it's fine. I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because the reality is, all over the world, people are coming to faith in Jesus every single day. And sometimes we forget that. You know, young and old, rich and poor, male and female, people are becoming Christians. Um, you know, we're going through a tough patch in this country at the moment. But okay. Um, Paul McKenna was on Radio 2 this morning on Good Morning Sunday. And he was saying some stuff about positive thinking. <laughs> I was thinking, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Because I think you're right. I think the answer is Jesus. I think what the world needs is Jesus, actually. 
this historical figure who lived in real time and space is actually no ordinary human being. He has totally invaded space and time with his lordship and offers people of all nations, ethnicity, backgrounds, whatever, the opportunity to be reconciled with God and for their lives to be totally transformed. I have far more meaning, purpose, significance, self-worth, security in my life at 51 and three quarters <laughs> than I've ever had. So, you know, that's, yeah, this isn't done. I, I think people are looking. I'm hugely excited by being a Christian and a Christian leader in 2019 because I see signs that people are engaging far more with spirituality, and I do believe that Jesus is the answer. Awesome. Thank you very much for your honesty. I really hope that that's something that's ongoing. Myself and Mark have talked about this idea that actually testimony is incredibly powerful. It's really easy for me to stand up here and say some stuff and, and protect myself in the things that I say. And I love the opportunities myself and Mark have to dialogue and get to that reality of who we are, who we were, and just how significant Jesus has been in that. I want you to consider, as I've said, this question, who is Jesus to you? I just want to pick out some areas of his life. The Jesus who ate with the tax collectors, who challenged the religious authorities, who knelt down to defend a woman caught in adultery, who fed thousands with fish and loaves, turned water into wine, sat with the 12, sent out 72, who wept over a dead friend and cried in anguish over the prospect of his own death and ultimately hung on a cross, innocent. Who is Jesus to you? Because as I read that and as I listen to Mark, I begin to realize that actually everything I've learned doesn't scratch the surface. Jesus is more than I can understand. And I've come to the conclusion I'm okay with that because I've tried a whole lot of solutions and they've fallen short. And I hear stories like Mark's and I've had the privilege of hearing other stories and you get to that point where you're like, I do not get how this works. But yet I can conclude Jesus is involved and therefore, he's more than I can understand. So please, if you're in a situation, if you're in a place where you're like, there is no way out, this is a dead end, this situation is done for, I am in all sorts of trouble, then please hear that. Jesus is more than you can understand. Therefore, he is still the answer. Your best guess is not going to add up. As we begin to wrap things up, I want to focus in on this. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I'm going to say something that might get me in trouble and I'm okay with that. I think on a, a whole lot of the time we get Christianity wrong. I think a whole lot of the time we get Christianity wrong because what we seem to have done is brought in a structure, brought in a gauge that makes it a whole lot about us. We've decided the best way that Christianity works is if we can somehow work out how well we are doing. We've decided that we can't pray out loud because we're not spiritual enough. Don't know enough spiritual words to pray out loud, so I'm going to keep quiet. We've decided that we have all the answers because we did a course once. So now, therefore, we're allowed to say we've got all the answers. We disqualify ourselves from service because of the past that we lived. 
We have somehow bought into a Christianity that is all about us. That is all about us. And yet what I read here is Jesus saying that he knows me, he knows you. And if we know him, that's the deal. That's the deal. That's what it boils down to. Yes, there'll be changes in your life. Yes, there'll be areas he challenges. But that will not be the defining factor as to whether you know him and he knows you. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and he and my sheep know me. It does not outline how qualified you need to be to know him. It does not qualify how good you need to be. It doesn't say that we have to have read our Bible 30 times to know him. It doesn't say that we have to be doing good works or bad works. In fact, it doesn't even say so long as we're hitting the middle ground works, we're okay. In fact, it says incredibly little about me. It says very little about you and says a whole lot about who Jesus is. And I think those of you who listen to what Mark was saying would say, you know what, that's probably a good thing for Mark's life. And I look at Mark's life and I see my life and I say, you know what, it's a real good job this isn't about me. And it is all about him. Maybe you're sat there feeling like you know Jesus, but you're not good enough. You know him, but there's, there's something in the way. Your parts doesn't match up. Your presence is a mess. You don't read enough. You don't pray enough. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're sat there quite right now thinking, you know what, I've got it all together. I'm doing pretty good. I read my Bible loads. In fact, my gosh, I read, you know, I read like foreign language books on Jesus. I'm that good. I avoid making mistakes. I'm an all-around good person. Please hear this, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. Group one, doesn't matter. Group two, doesn't matter. Those of you who are sat there going, you know what, I don't fit into a group, does not matter. This is not a message for individuals sat in a group. This is a message for individuals as they are. This is not about what outward performance I am showing you. This is about an inward relationship. It is not about you. It is all about Jesus. So when I ask the question, who is Jesus to you? When I answer that, he is everything. He is my everything. Because the best I can bring will fall short. So I am incredibly grateful that it's about him. It's about him. And as Mark touched on, it's about what he did on the cross. For me and for you. I was listening to a song earlier, by chance, it wasn't the song I'd put on, and in it, incredibly articulately, and I can't remember the words, but in it, it talked about this fact that actually the cross was done before any of us. The cross was done before any of us. It was done before our best days, our worst days. It was done because God so loved the world that he sent his only son, and the world at the time that he sent his son wasn't just then, it was all of us as well so actually my very best days the cross was already done my very worst days the cross was already done I am loved and accepted by him because he is love because Jesus is my everything so I ask you again who is Jesus to you I want to promise you something the more you learn of the answer to that question, the more you'll fall in love with him. I promise you that. 
I promise you the more that you learn the answer to that question, the more you will be inspired by him. I can promise you the more that you understand the question, who is Jesus to me, the more your heartbeat will be in time with his and your compassions will become his compassions and your actions will look a whole lot like the actions of Jesus. Because the more we address the question, who is Jesus to me, the more we have to learn about who he is. And the more I've learned about who he is over this last fortnight, the more I'm blown away by him. The more I am in awe of all he did for me. The more passionate I am to serve him in any way that I can. So I close with the question, who is Jesus to you? Because I want to give you this answer. Because whoever he is to you, he loves you. Pastors, Jesus loves us. Sound guys, tech guys, musicians, Jesus loves you. People sat there, Jesus loves you. First time in church, Jesus loves you. Worst sinner out of all of us, Jesus loves you. Person who read like three chapters of their Bible this morning, Jesus loves you. Person who only just made it here because they had a heavy night last night, Jesus loves you. That answer is all you need to know. And from there, I beg you, please ask the question, if Jesus loves me, who is Jesus to me?